0: near the front if you happen to have one of our pew bibles it should be on page 45 and if you don't own a bible we'd love for you to take that one home and make it your own and we're studying exodus together because we really aim to ride one horse pretty well here at grace fellowship and and that horse is the gospel the good news of what god has done to rescue sinners and commonly maybe we think that the good news or the gospel happens happens when Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament. But that's not true. The gospel and its foundations and its beginnings are actually, well, they're actually in the book of Genesis. They're throughout the Bible. And we find it even very poignant in the book of Exodus. So even here, at least... At least a thousand years, over a thousand years before Jesus is born, we're reading a story that points us to Jesus. And so if if you're familiarity with the Old Testament or if you've ever heard before that, well, the Old Testament is about a God who's repressive and vengeful and angry, and the New Testament is about a God of love and mercy... Exodus is just one of those places where that misunderstanding of Scripture is corrected. So that's why we're studying Exodus for a little while. We started last week, and so just by way of reminder, before we read, what we saw last week is really that things couldn't get any worse. God's people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, are in Egypt. They're in a different country, and they're basically an immigrant They're an enslaved immigrant labor force, right? Um, God sent them to Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis. And what we see happening is they get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. And as they do, Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, feels threatened by them. And so he takes steps to try to break their spirit. Um, he, He makes them slave labor. He oppresses them with the whip. And it doesn't work. And so then what he decides to do is just wholesale slaughter. He decides that he's going to kill every Hebrew boy that he can. And his command to his people is to throw the Hebrew babies in the river. And so I want you to feel the heaviness of that. Because I think we can read that story. uh, We can read this story and not really enter into the darkness that this presents for us. These are real People. And so I want you to feel the weight of the whip. I want you to feel the weight of the water of these moms and dads watching their children drown in the Nile River. That's what is happening to God's people at the beginning of Exodus. And there's just this little glimmer of hope. Uh, a baby boy is born, and his mom, rather than throw him into the river, puts him in a basket, an ark. To be exact same word that is used of Noah in Genesis puts him in a little basket sealed up so the water can't get in and she floats him down the river and trusts God to see what might happen. And lo and behold, he's picked up by none other than Pharaoh's daughter and this and she has pity on the baby and this baby boy is raised. This Hebrew boy is raised in Pharaoh's house. And his name is Moses. And this is where we pick up his story in Exodus 2, verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why have you left him? Call him that he may eat with us. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Grishom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. God in heaven, as we come now to your word, we pray, Lord, that you would bless its reading, and its hearing, and its preaching, would you help us to hear the good news, I pray, Lord, that you would speak truth, that these words would come from you and that they would impact our hearts. That whatever doesn't come from you but comes from me would, would blow away and be forgotten. But that your word would find root in our hearts and grow up and change us and help us to bear fruit. So would you transform us through the power of your Holy Spirit and by the preaching of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I realized as I was sitting there singing that... Um, that's actually not the right outline. I changed my outline this morning and forgot to change it on there. But it's still a two-point outline, so we'll just go with it. I made it a little bit simpler. All right? Have you ever, have you ever jumped the gun? Right? You wanted, to, you wanted to get something done or you had really good intentions. And, and it, was, it was a good thing maybe that you did, but you did it at the wrong time. Right? You, you went a little early. If you've ever watched a, a track meet... If you've ever watched the Olympics and the track track games, you'll notice that where all the runners are lined up, they have to start with their feet in the blocks, and they cannot go before the gun fires. In fact, if they start before the gun fires, they run the risk of being disqualified. If they jump the gun, if they go too soon, they may actually get thrown out of the race. Have you have you been there? Have you done something like that you thought was good, but your timing was really off? It seems, at least from a human perspective here, that Moses jumps the gun. He acts, and maybe with good intentions, but not in the way or in the time that God would have him to act. And so what we're going to see... In today's passage is that God still uses, God uses, thank God, he uses imperfect people like Moses, like me, like you. God uses imperfect people to work out his perfect plan. And that's good news. First, one, you see up there how Moses and we get it wrong. I changed this. God prepares his Redeemer. There's a lot that we could applaud Moses for here. I'll, Notice there at the beginning in verse 11, it says that Moses wanted to go out and visit his people. Now, this is, uh, as best we know, this is about 40 years later. So we saw Moses as a baby being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. That's the last thing we heard. And now we see Moses as a grown man and he knows who he is. He knows he's not an Egyptian. He knows the people that he belongs to and he is not content to stay in Pharaoh's house and ignore the plight of his people. That's a good thing. And so Moses goes out to see his people. He's not immune to their plight. In Acts 7, a man named Stephen says it like this. Acts seven twenty-three. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Here's how Moses is described in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11:24. 11, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's a good thing, right? It's a good thing that Moses wants to be identified with God's people and not with his Egyptian raising. All right, he's in in essence turning his back on his adoptive mother and embracing the plight of his people. And we want to commend that. His heart is in the right place. And he wants justice. Three times in this passage, we see that Moses is a defender of the weak. He's a—he's not just a man who has good ideas, but he's a man of action. When he sees that somebody, right, he intervenes three different times in a situation where he perceives that somebody is being wrong. So Moses is a strong man. He's a passionate man. He's a man of action. Again, not... Necessarily a bad thing. So what does Moses do with his heart and with his action? Well, he sees an Egyptian man beating one of his Hebrew brothers. And it says he looks this way and that. Now, maybe, just maybe, Moses was kind of looking around to see if anybody else was going to do something. That's best intention. Or, Moses was looking around to see... If anybody was going to see what he was about to do, that would be worst intention. The text isn't really clear, but either way, Moses scopes the terrain and doesn't see anybody else. And so Moses intervenes. And it's interesting. It uses the same word. He sees an Egyptian striking a Hebrew. And so Moses strikes the Egyptian. And when he strikes him, he kills him and he buries his body in the sand now, just kind of a note for your own, as you resolve conflict in your own personal life, if you have to bury a body in the sand, you might have gone about it the wrong way. Right? Um, that's, usually, that's usually not a sign that the just thing has been done when you look for a place to hide the body. But isn't this instructive of how we deal with our own sin? What is it? when i'm when i'm in the wrong when i wrong someone else my first inclination is to hide it to tuck it away we like to pretend maybe that our children are the only ones who do that no we just get much better at it it's not that we've necessarily matured a whole lot more and learned how to be up front with our failures um whereas our kids don't aren't that wily yet they're not that smart um we just get smarter at hiding our sin, don't we? Uh, we? We make excuses or we blame someone else, um, but we bury the body in the sand. And so it's a wonderful mark of God's grace that we get exposed. Wonderful? How can you say, Kevin, how can you say that's a good thing that, that my failures are exposed, that my sin is brought to light? Well, because if they're not, if they're left in the dark, if I'm allowed to hide from even from the consequences of my sin, then nothing ever changes, and we can just kind of keep on chugging on. It's okay, everything's okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. Really, it's okay. Um, I recently, I'm I'm very proud of myself. I realize for most of the men in the room, this is not a huge accomplishment. but I recently changed the oil and air filter on my lawnmower. Okay? Thanks. You didn't, you didn't have to clap for that. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm from the suburbs, okay? That's just part of it. So... Now, I could, and the, really the sad part about that, you clap. the sad part about this, I've already had the lawnmower like two years. So this is the first time that I've actually serviced the mower. Now, I could have kept going and pretended like everything was going to be okay, right? I, I could have ignored the fact, uh, I could have ignored the white smoke that belched out of the engine every time I started, right? I could have ignored the rough idling engine, Right. And just kind of kept on going and pretended like that's nah, going to be fine. It's going to be OK. And that's what we do, don't we? We just kind of we, I'm OK. You're OK. It's all OK. Everything's OK. Sure. My kids won't listen to me and my co-workers don't respect me, but eh, I'm OK. Right. Um, and so it's a wonderful mark of God's grace that he allows us to be exposed. Look at what happens to Moses. His plan backfires. The next day he goes out, he sees two Hebrews fighting with each other. And again, he intervenes and says, guys, what are you doing? He looks at the man who's in the wrong and he says, why are you hitting your friend? And what does he say? He says, who are you? You're not the boss of me, right? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? And the answer is nobody. Not yet. Moses is a little... Premature, Moses sought to flex his muscles and it backfired because now what his what his brothers say to him is, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? You're clearly a violent man. And so Moses's plan backfires. Now, it's interesting how Stephen describes this in Acts seven in his sermon as he talks about it. Acts seven twenty five, he says He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses, at least according to Stephen, understood that his purpose was to rescue God's people. Or at least to rescue his people. Do you notice know, it repeated that twice. His people. He let out to see his people. The guy was beating one of his people. And so Moses thinks it's his job to save his people. And it is sort of. But not in this way and not at this time. And it backfires on Moses. And Pharaoh hears about it and seeks to kill Moses. And so Moses has to run Away, And so, this would-be hero takes matters into his own hands, he flexes his muscles, tries to lead a rebellion, and ends up running off into the desert. I mean, this is like the definition of failure. This is a huge, at least from our perspective, a huge setback. I mean just just think about again from a human perspective how much potential Moses had he was raised in the home of the most powerful man in the world that means that all of the learning and technology of Egypt belonged to Moses right he had he had it made he could be a man of influence i mean he was a, a prince of egypt for crying out loud and then he squanders it he gets rash he wastes it, and now he's washed up, 40 year old, sitting by a well in the wilderness. How sad. What a waste. And that's how we get it wrong. One, yes, because we aim to take matters into our hands way too often. And we assume that the way that God wants to work is by the strength of our gifts or by the strength of our calling. And that if I flex my muscles, God is going to bless that and use it. And it's all going to be hunky-dory. And then we find out that maybe that's not how God wanted to work after all. And we end up sitting by a well in the desert, wondering what has become of our lives. And so it all looks pretty grim. Again, that, that little glimmer of hope seems to be gone. That boy drawn out of the water, now off in the distance, and all hope seems lost. Man's incompetence, man's rashness, man's spoiled strength seems to have spoiled God's plans. But the beautiful thing about God, at least the God of the Bible is that man's incompetence and man's rashness and man's spoiled strength does not have the last word. God actually has plans for Moses in the wilderness, because Moses has a few things to learn. Moses has a few things to learn about what it means to be a leader. So, if you ever get frustrated with God's timetable... I'm 36, about to be 37, so I'm not even as old as Moses here in this story. Moses, it it will be 40 more years before Moses comes back. Um, Moses is 80 when God uses him. It takes 80 years to get Moses ready for his divine calling. How's that for a timetable? Right? Somebody said, that's it a long time. Right? Take heart, if you're only 12, it doesn't have to take that long. Okay, um, That's a frustrating thing. And just to put it in a different perspective, God's people have been in Egypt now going on 430 years most of that time, they have been in slavery. So to put that in perspective, 430 years is, let's see, our country will turn 300 uh, on 2076. Is my math right? Is that right? Yep. We will turn 300 on 2076. How many of you will be alive when our country sees 300? Okay. Um, So, yeah, you'll be alive. You just won't be here. Um, Israel had been slaves in Egypt longer than the United States of America has been a nation, and even the uh, even the atrocities of the African slave trade, Israel endured longer slavery uh, than what America perpetrated on uh, on in the African slave trade. So that just kind of puts that puts the atrocity in perspective that. The timetable isn't always what we would want it to be. But that often when we act out of the timetable or we think we're taking matters into our own hands, we find, we find ourselves frustrated because God has different plans and God has different plans for Moses. Moses has a few things to learn. But while Moses is in the wilderness, and this is my second point, while God is preparing his Redeemer in the wilderness... God remembers his people. Look at this beautiful passage at the end of Exodus 2. This is, one of my, this is one of my favorites. You see Moses kind of at the end there in verse 22. I mean, he's got a wife, he's got a family, he has his first child. But you can, you can hear the longing in his voice. He names his son Gershom. Because I am a sojourner in a foreign land, right? Moses recognizes, this is not where I belong. Moses could very easily settle down in Midian where he is, and he's going to be there a long time. But, that's not where he belongs, and he has that innate sense that he knows it. And then, it says this, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. New King, same story. God's people still enslaved on the ragged edge and they cry out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Do you hear the, the punch of those four verbs, those four action words? God heard. God remembered. God saw. And God knew. Everything is gloomy and doubtful. And murky until we read these verses. And these verses are which the whole story of Exodus turns. Exodus happens because of these verses. And actually, this is the first time that God comes onto the stage. This is the first time in Exodus that God is even mentioned. He's been in the background. We talked about that last week. He's been in the background up until this moment. And the last. Possible second. When all hope seems lost, Moses is gone. The people are still enslaved. They're crying out. And what does Moses tell us? God hears. God remembers. God sees. And God knows. God has not forgotten his people. God heard their groaning. When I Go out to eat with somebody, you've experienced this, if we've hung out before, I usually have to position myself away from a television, right? Like, I usually have to position myself with my back to the TV, so that I will actually hear what you are saying to me. Because if the TV is in front of me, I might be listening, Uh uh-huh, yeah, Uh uh-huh, but I'm not hearing you, right? Um... My kids get this from me, right? When I walk in to kind of give them a warning that it's, you know, screen time is almost over. Guys, five more minutes and they're like, uh huh. Yeah. Sounds good. Can you leave? Right? That's not hearing. God heard their groaning. God is a God who hears. God is paying attention. He's not aloof, He's not indifferent. God remembers his covenant. God had promised Abraham. This is in the book of Genesis before this hundreds of years. God had promised Abraham three things. I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you a great land. And I will be your God. Right. Those were the three covenant promises that God made to Abraham and to his sons after him. And so these people in slavery are they are the heirs of that promise. God said, I'm going to make you big. I'm going to give you a place to live. And even more important than all of that, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the covenant. And it's that that God remembers. Now, when we hear the word remember, I don't want you to, I don't want you to think that means like God had somehow forgotten. You know, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham, I remember now, of course. Right. No, that's not that's not what God is doing. When the Hebrews says that God remembers, it means that he is stirred to action, that he is moving towards the object of his memory. It's not as if God has ever forgotten what he promised, but it means that God is move is moving towards action. God remembers. It's been a long time. It's been a hard time. But God remembers. God saw. You know what it feels like to actually be seen? Uh, One of my father-in-law's favorite stories is of when my wife, Rebecca, was a small child. And uh, he was watching TV and she was sitting on his lap just talking. I know it surprises you that... Um, my wife's a little bit of a talker, was when she was a kid, okay? So, um, she's sitting on his lap, and she's just talking away, and he's watching TV, and she grabbed his face and said, Daddy, look at me, right? You know, you know what it means to finally be seen, for someone to look at you. God sees His people. He sees what's going on. And the reason that these verbs are so important is because we're prone to think the opposite of every single one. God does not hear. God does not see. God does not remember. Yes, He does. He hears. He sees. He remembers. And then last of all, it says, God... Knows. And what's really interesting is that there's no object to that verb. You, you expect something, right? God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw his people. And God knew. Period. God knew. Now, the NIV kind of glosses this a little bit and says he had concern for his people. But that's just a wimpy way of putting it. We need the punch of the Period. It's just simply, God knew, period. It's like when you're with someone who's grieving. There's not, you're just there. You don't have to say a whole lot. You put your arm around them, and you say, I know. I know. And I'm sorry. And just the fact that someone knows... Makes all the difference. The word "know" here—it's not—it's not to know a fact. Not like you would know that two plus two equals four. The word "know" is an intimate word. It's a personal word. It's the same word as Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. And that's not because Adam knew her favorite color. All right, that's a a different kind of knowing. God knows us intimately like that. And that is the hope on which Exodus turns. God sees, God hears, God remembers, and God knows. When I read this, I think of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, of course. And in that story, if you're not familiar with it, The land of Narnia is stuck in a perpetual winter. It's frozen. It's under the thumb of the white witch. There's no hope. All of the inhabitants are either enslaved or frozen or getting there. And into the story come these four children. They're kind of accidentally thrust into the story. And... They make their way to the house of Mr. Beaver and Mr. Beaver's telling them what's going on and how the white witch has enslaved the country and how everything's frozen and it's always winter and never Christmas. And then he says this, Aslan is on the move. And the children, even though they have no idea who Aslan is, are strangely stirred. Because as we come to find out, Aslan is the king. He is the redeeming king. And he is coming to thaw the ice and to defeat the white witch. And so these verses tell us that Aslan is on the move. As bleak as it looks, with Moses in the desert and the people in slavery, God is on the move. He's coming to get his people. Because he has not forgotten his covenant. He sees them, he hears them, and he knows them. All is not completely lost for Moses and Midian. This is interesting little episode where he's sitting by the well and these girls come to water the flock of their father. And these other shepherds, because they probably either want to take the sheep or take the water. Water is a pretty precious commodity in this part of the world. And so, these shepherds come and they chase the girls off. And Moses intervenes. This is the third time Moses has intervened. He stands up. He defends the girls. And then he waters their flock. And it's interesting what they say. What the girls say when they come to their father, they say... Daddy, daddy, you would never guess what happened. This Egyptian man, because Moses would have looked like an Egyptian. He's wearing Egyptian clothes. He had Egyptian hair, all that kind of good stuff. Right? This Egyptian man saved us. That's the word. Saved us. And not only did he save us, but he also watered the flocks. So it looks like God can use Moses after all. It's interesting what Hebrews eleven. If we look at um, if we look at Hebrews eleven again, Hebrews eleven twenty four. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The reproach of Christ, that's a really fancy phrase. Basically, Moses would rather be rejected by Egypt because of Jesus, God, than enjoy its pleasures, enjoy its treasures. He considered the reward better. What is all that saying? Moses was not the last redeemer. To be rejected. Jesus also was rejected. What's interesting is that Moses was rejected by his own people. His own people said, who are you? Who are you to be a prince and a judge over us? Are you going to kill us? And Moses is rejected by his own people. Thousands of years later. Another, another person comes on the scene. Another redeemer. And John's gospel tells us that he, too, is rejected by his own. He, too, was denied the opportunity. But unlike Moses, Jesus doesn't kill anyone. He doesn't take anyone's life. In fact, he allows his life to be taken. Jesus doesn't flex his muscles to rescue God's people. Jesus allows his muscles to be stretched out on the cross so that he can die for God's people. And when he does that, he keeps a promise. To us is from Isaiah, I'm going to read to you from Isaiah forty three, twenty five. We talked about God remembering. God remembers his covenant. He remembers his promises. Do you know what God does not remember? Your sin. Isaiah forty three twenty five I, I am he who blots out your transgressions, blots out your rebellion for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Does that mean that God just kind of like literally forgets that they ever happen? No. Remember the Hebrew, right? To remember something is to move in action toward it, to do something about it. Right. And so when God promises in Christ not to remember your sins. He's taking care of it. He's not going to move in action against them. He's not going to punish you for them. Friend, you and I live remembering all the wrong things or at least thinking that God remembers all the wrong things you live probably most of your life in fear and in anxiety of the fact that you you think god god's going to remember that right god's not going to use me cuz he's going to remember what happened 10 years ago he's going to hold that against me friend because of christ god does not hold your sin against you god knows your plight god sees the oppression and yes, he even sees what you have done. He sees what Moses has done. He's got, he's got a path for Moses. And by the way, it's not Moses' plan B. God isn't, God isn't in heaven going like, God, Moses, come on. That's not what I wanted you to do. Now it's going to take 40 more years. No, that was it all along. God uses an imperfect person to work out his perfect plan. I wonder, is your view of God such that you think He is dangling your sin over your head, just waiting to cut the rope and drop the anvil? Friend, if you are in Christ, the anvil has already fallen on someone else. And you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You are rescued. You are set free. God does not remember your sin anymore. He remembers His promise. He remembers his promise to bless the world through Abraham's greater son, Jesus. He remembers that. But he does not remember your sin anymore. Do you believe that? As we come to the table, as we come to have communion, this is a table for those who have been rescued. It's a table for those that God knows, for those who live in God's covenant promises through the perfect work of the son, Jesus. And so, come and enjoy the feast. Come and enjoy the table. Adding this, that if you are not in Christ, the table is closed to you. This is a meal, just as the Passover that we're gonna see later on in Exodus. This is a, this is a meal for the, this is a family meal. So it's for those not who are in the Presbyterian Church are not just members of Grace Fellowship, but who are members of the household of faith, members of God's family who stand under Jesus. If that's you, come to the table. If that's not you, come to Jesus. Place your life in His hands, realizing that His timing is perfect and that He is a God who does not remember your sin anymore. As the elders come forward to get the table ready, let me pray for us. God in heaven, Lord, we praise you for the good news of Exodus. We praise you that you are a God who sees, a God who knows, a God who hears, a God who remembers. You see the plight of your people. And rather than leave them to the fate, rather than leave us to the fate that we deserve, you rescue us. You come to us. You send a Redeemer, one like Moses, but better. You send us Jesus, your own Son, rejected, despised, bearing the curse, so that we would bear the curse no longer. Oh, Lord, would you take common bread and common juice and would you use it for that special purpose, that mysterious spirit wrought purpose as a means of grace. Strengthen us for the road ahead. We pray it in Jesus name. Amen. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and having given thanks for it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And just like you would at a a family meal, hold on to the bread and we'll eat it together after everyone's been
1: served. And you can sing along with us or you can look at the words and just make these a prayer um, as we're getting ready for um, communion.
0: who was crucified and given for you God's Redeemer take and eat in the same way after the supper Jesus took the cup gave thanks and then he said this cup is the new covenant because you've broken the old covenant you can't keep the law Not the law that Moses gave, but Jesus did. And he is the giver of a new covenant in which God remembers your sins no more. Take and drink. Stand and sing in response to all that God has done. blessing from Numbers 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said,
1: Amen. Amen.